The more you go into war zones, the more you realise mad, crazy stuff happens for reasons which you can almost not fathom. I was more driven by what war does to people. It seems to me that your camera and your film footage is worth more than your life at times. You deconstruct the normal human reactions to other human beings and suffering to such a degree you can do your job. It's face-to-face -face and intense like nothing else you can imagine. I can tell you stories will make your blood freeze. Two dozen British and American elite forces guys against 600 diehard Al-Qaeda and Taliban. Victor Boot was the second most wanted man after Osama bin Laden at the time. In October 1943, we hijacked a train to a Italian concentration camp, rescued 180 of the people held in that concentration camp, loaded them back aboard the train and steamed back to Allied lines. Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host Dodge and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Damien Lewis is a war correspondent and filmmaker that has spent the last 20 years in the world's most hostile and war-torn environments. An award-winning author of 30-plus books and producing 20 films, Damien shares his story on life on the front line and how special forces defended against attacks from the likes of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. This is the eventful life of Mr. Damien Lewis. This is a diff real different one for us, but... I'm going to read out, Damien has written over 35 war books with SAS, SBS and all sorts, an amazing human being, he's, he's directed lots of films, he's working with Guy Ritchie, but I just want to start here by reading out some of the books that he's written. SAS Great Escapes 2, SAS Brothers in Arms, The Flame of Resistance, SAS Great Escapes, SAS Band of Brothers, SAS Shadow Raiders. SAS Italian Job, Hunting Hitler's Nukes, The Nazi Hunters, Churchill's Secret Warriors, Judy, A Dog in a Million, War Dog, Operation Certain Death, Bloody Heroes, Cobra 405, 06 Bravo, Operation Relentless, Firestrike 79, A Dog Called Hope, SAS Bravo 30. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I just wanted to get that in there so all the viewers can actually understand how relentless you've been over the past 20 years of writing books and directing movies and what have you. But let's start, well, I can normally start. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you end up becoming a war correspondent, director, author? Yeah, so I grew up not so far from here. I grew up in um, a little, well, not even a village. I grew up not even on a farm. I grew up in the middle of nowhere in West Dorset. Um, little tiny thatched cottage. My father was a teacher in a local school. I went to the local school, which is Hardy's in Dorchester, mm -hmm. so not so far from here at all. Um, went off to university. And at university, I, um, myself and some mates, organised this crazy mad expedition to drive from the UK to the Congo in Africa. So that's across the Sahara <laughs> Desert <laughs> in a Land Rover and to make a film. 
uh, not none of us had no experience of making a film. Yeah. It was this, you know, sometimes naivety is the best oh, thing. Yeah. Because it enables you to take that Agreed. first step. And every journey starts with naivety step. is a gift in business. It's a gift. Yeah, it's an absolute gift because yep. otherwise you won't do it. Agreed. There's a saying in the, in the SAS or in elite forces: analysis to paralysis. Yeah. yeah. So we set off on this expedition. It was a year long expedition. We drove to basically to the Congo, across the Sahara, did our filming, drove back again. I mean, that in itself was yeah. you can imagine. It was the, the adventures <laughs> on the way. Roughly, what year are we talking here? 1989. Okay. 1989 to 1990, yeah. and uh, you know, crazy adventures on that. Really crazy, crazy adventures on the way. And then trying to cut a really long story short, the documentary that we made won the BBC Wildlife uh, WDF Golden Panda Award for the newcomer, which is this like massive kind of, uh, you know, nature adventure conservation award for filmmaking. So it was a fluke and it was that thing. Sometimes naivety wins the day. And then because of that, you know, I kind of catapulted myself certainly into that world. And the next thing, this is even more, crazy so <laughs> when i'd been organizing that expedition i was the fundraiser right and i got a winston churchill traveling fellowship that's one of the ways we funded it right yeah. um i was i'm a winston churchill uh, trust fellow and um in the process of organizing it I was back in dorset i was working on a local farm in the corn dryer right i was coming back from a day's work on my 750 kawasaki motorcycle 38 ton fertilizer lorry came around the corner on my side of the road took me out so I was in hospital for at least three months, should have lost my leg. It should have, could have died, should have lost yeah. my leg. I mean, really touch and go. Anyway, the reason I'm telling that story is because eventually, when I was about 22, so after we'd been on this expedition yeah. to Africa, which, by the way, the doctors and my medical team said, you are not going on that expedition. <laughs> and I said, you know, wild horses won't stop me from doing yeah. that. Yeah. So after that expedition, I got my compensation money for having to smash myself up on the motorbike. Now, most normal people would have bought a house. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I used that money to buy myself a camera and a load of sound recording kit and recruited this guy as my sound recorder. So we set, and we set off to tr- cross the border illegally from Thailand into Burma and to join the Karen rebels who were fighting against the military dictatorship. And we spent a year in the jungle on the front line, often actually far across the front line in, in contested territory, making a documentary film. Wow. Which, which was then bought after the event and, and shown on Channel 4. Wow. So that was the first kind of step into a, a, a real war zone and behind enemy lines. And that's, you know, a, that's a ballsy move, by the way. It was... It was going to Thailand, across the border to Burma and yeah. going deep into Burma. Yeah, yeah. How many were there of you? Well, myself and my sound recorder, this guy called Tom Sheehan. And then we had... At any one time, we probably had about 100 Karen rebels, and the Karen fought with the British in the Second World War, of course. So, you know, we we would run across old guys in these huts in the middle of the jungle who might, sometimes you'd, you'd go into a village and they hadn't seen a white person since the Second World War. Yeah. And these guys would walk out with their rows of British medals and kind of salute you, you know, it's wow. really extraordinary. Um, but usually there was about maybe 100 of the, Karen, I mean, they're freedom fighters, you know. You say Korean? Korean. Karen. Karen. It, it's one of the tribes. Okay. The hill tribes yep. that fought with the British in the Second World War. And then, of course, you know, have been fighting, you know, the Burmese dictatorship yeah, okay. for, for decades. So we, we'd have a hundred of them with us. There was one time when we were, we were hunted by at least a thousand troops from the Burmese uh, military dictatorship. I mean, you know, yeah, we were, you know, surrounded and yeah, it was, it was, 
full on, really full on. What what made you be so ballsy to do something like this? What were you, the mid twenties at this time? No, I was 22, 23. Okay. I have no idea. I mean, that that is a question that I. It's a tough one. I'll tell I'll tell you a story because it's a, it kind of maybe it, it hits the nail on the head. So. I think my my mum left when I was quite young, so I was brought up by my father. I've got an older brother and sister, and I think my father is a very moral kind of man, a very you know, ethically driven man, and I think he kind of instilled this, certainly in me. I was the youngest. Mm. Um, but I'd been away, and I can't remember, I'd been away in a war zone somewhere, and it was a bit later, maybe I was like mid to late 20s, and I came back, went back to our home in Dorset, and we sat up drinking a bottle of whiskey until about, I don't know, two in the morning, and he said to me, you know, we were quite, mm. quite tipsy. And he said, uh, do you know that every time you go away, I've no idea where you are. I've no idea if you're coming back. It kills me inside. And I'm like, and I was like, yeah, I'm aware of that. But what would you rather have me do? And he said, you know, just do anything. Go out and sell double glazing, you know, just anything. Mm. But, you know, that wasn't in the DNA. Mm. And I mm. said to him, you know, it's not in my DNA. It's not what you put there. So... Yeah, it was it was it was tough on the family, and I I can't fathom why it was. But I'll tell you one thing: if you go into those places, you know, because after Burma, I went to all the kind of you know crazy places you can think of. If you go into those places and you spend time with as as and, and what we were really doing, you know, a lot of people in that profession, not a lot, some people in that profession are driven by the desire to get what they call bang-bang footage, which is the footage of people fighting each other. I wasn't so much driven by that. I was more driven by what war does to people, to civilians, you know, and and the environment as well, but mainly civilians. And if you've been in situations where you've seen that kind of shit going on, you can imagine it in Ukraine at the moment, for example. Yeah. Yeah. You become driven by that mission. It becomes really, really kind of it drives you onwards. What to find out what the knock-on effects of war yeah, are to the, your average yeah. mum, yeah. kid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because that really gets you yeah. there. You know what I mean? And when you spend a lot of time with whoever it might be, because I was embedded, you know, with the Karen rebels. Then I was embedded with lots of. Sometimes you'd be embedded with a rebel army. Sometimes you'd be embedded with your own military. Sometimes you'd be embedded with a foreign military. You're always kind of on somebody's side. And once you spent a lot of time on the front line with whoever it is, you forge these incredible yeah, relationships. Yeah. They are so real and 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 you know really really powerful. And so it, that that kind of compels you to keep going back. How did they react when they saw a couple of white kids come across the border and with a camera and a sound sound mic? We had the most unbelievable reactions. I'll tell you one story because it's it's kind of one of the most crazy ones. So we were uh, we were right, you know, it, 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 we were certainly over the front line in what they call brown territory. So you know, fought over territory, and we'd been there for weeks on end. And, and so we we were carrying. I, I remember one time, right? Um, there was a guy, one of the Karen fighters, had. Um, an M203 grenade launcher, okay? And he had all his grenades in like a, like a photographer's, sleeveless oh, photographer's yeah. jacket, yeah, yeah, yeah. stuffed in them, covered in it, right? And I, because it, back in the time I was filming, I was carrying sealed lead acid batteries. So I had military webbing with my batteries, sealed lead acid batteries slung on them. And I said to him, I bet my webbing's heavier than yours. He had the grenades, I had the batteries. And we swapped and my webbing was, was far heavier than his, right? <laughs> and there was one time, so we had our packs, yeah. right? Massive packs. And I had this, the, the sealed lead acid battery slung on me. And there was one time we were going across a river. It was a mountain 
jungle you know, clad mountain and the river was, you know, it was precipitous. We're going across this river and I fell and you fall in that water. What happens? Because your pack's on your back yeah. and it's so heavy. You get dragged under like a like like a like an upended tortoise. Right. Okay. And you can't get back up again. Okay. You drown. Right. So I was off. Right. I was off. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to die. And one of the guys, one of the crane guys, reached out, grabbed hold of the back of my pack, pulled me up, and saved me. Loads oh. and loads of situations like that. So, um, but going back to your question, mm. yeah. One time we were mid- middle of nowhere, you know, behind behind the lines, and they some local hunters staked out a dead animal i can't remember it's a donkey or something and they caught a tiger it was terrible you know they caught and they shot a tiger but because we were like these honored white guys who turned up there to film you know this war this forgotten war we were the we were the guests of honor at this kill so we had to turn up and they 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 skinned it and they gutted it and they cooked some of the meat and they made tiger curry and we had to sit down and be the first people to eat it and you couldn't say no no you couldn't say no because they were like you know we, disrespectful yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> on the one hand it's horrific because they've killed this beautiful yeah. beautiful animal yeah. and on the other hand it's like please you know you're our honoured guests sit down and eat this you know curry tiger just what loads. Did, what did tiger taste like. It tasted like you'd imagine. It tasted like a really, really rank tomcat. It was not right, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big male tiger. Yeah. And what were your movements after then? Then you're like mid twenties now. What, what other war zones have you been to? What really stand out in your mind? You're like Jesus Christ. That was super dangerous. So the one that probably um, the two that probably got to me the most are Sierra Leone, obviously, because you know of the British military involvement there and the involvement of our elite forces there, and and the Sudan both of which are in Africa. And I say that because they are, I mean, Sierra Leone, the civil war there was probably the most horrific war on earth. They had that policy, the rebels of long hands, short hands, you know about it. Mm. So when they would capture men, you know, civilians, men, women, and children, they would say, do you want long hands or short hands? And long hands meant you had, you were amputated just your hands, right? Short hands meant you were amputated above the, above the elbow. So they would, they used amputations in the civil war in Sierra Leone as a way to spread terror and control. So, right? yeah, so when you come across that, you come across the amputation camps and stuff like that, man, it's just it's just young kids who have their lives and their futures destroyed just by crazed, warped, drug-crazed, mad rebels in that country. So that really... What was going on in Sierra Leone? What year are we talking here? You're talking early 90s through to just after the 2000s. What happened was yeah. the British military intervened in Sierra Leone. That book I wrote, Operation Certain Death, right? Yeah. What happened was British military there in Sierra Leone, they're, tr- they're training the, the, the nation's government's yeah. military, the, the army of Sierra Leone, to fight the rebels, okay? And there's some Royal Irish Ranger soldiers there on a training mission, and they, 17 of them get captured by this rebel group called the Westside Boys, one of these really, really drug-fooled, crazy, amputation-wielding machetes, just voodoo you know, crazed setups and they're captured by these guys, right? And they're held there. And so obviously we have to go in and rescue them. And obviously the, the one force that you can call in yeah. to a situation like that is the SAS. And so that book, Operation Certain Death, that is the story of how the SAS right. go in and not only rescue these 17 Royal Irish Rangers, but also by doing that, by sending that message to the rebels in Syria, they bring about an end to that civil war. So, did that put, did that bring it in? Because we've had big Phil Campion on here. He yeah. was part of that mission. Certain that's death. right. He was. Yeah, 
And he tells an amazing story of what, what it was like going flying in. Yeah. And then you're on. Yeah. You've got to do what you have to do to bring out yeah. the 17 Irish lads yeah. out. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, and, and that that place where they went in, when I was researching the book, so Gaberi Bana and, and the other village, okay, so this was just a, two or three years after they'd been in there and attacked. I went back there, right, and I can remember going down, driving down into it, and there's all the bullet cases lying around, and all the, bu- all the buildings are, like, still shot to pieces. It was really, really spooky and eerie do you know when you walk into one of those places and you, and you can feel recent death okay and you can feel resident evil you just feel the energy sense. yeah and the other thing that happened there which was you know equally equally insane well actually more insane was it during my research for that book i realized or i came across the fact that what would have been going on so the hidden context of that war which is just fascinating in, in, in the run-up to 9-11, the terror attacks in America, right? If you think about it, you're Al-Qaeda. You're the, you, you know, you're, those, the, you're that terrorist organization. You know this massive attack is coming. You know it's going to be war, right? So what do you need to do with all your funds? You can't leave them in bank accounts because yeah. obviously your bank accounts will get frozen. Yeah. So what's the most fungible, movable, mobile asset and the smallest asset in the world? It's diamonds. Yeah. Where do you go and buy your diamonds mm. illegally with all your millions and, and, yeah. and hundreds of millions of cash. You go to a war zone like Sierra Leone yeah. and Liberia, which are rich in, 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 in war diamonds. And that's what they've been doing. They've been going there for, for years and years and years and just buying up all the diamonds, right? And and getting rid of their cash because you can go and... Who was getting, who was getting the, all the, the diamonds? Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda were buying all the diamonds? Yes. Like from the film uh, Blood, Blood Diamond. Diamond? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so basically when we went in there and... You know, we rescued the hostages, but we also went in there and, and brought an end to the to, to the war of the rebels. We were indirectly going in there to stop that 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 trade in diamonds and that money laundering of those terrorist groups. So that was the kind of wider context. And part of the way that I kind of got in, I, I got into that story, uncovered it was when I was there. I, I, I you know, you, you kind of talk to people and they're telling you this stuff. And you don't believe it. Yeah. I didn't believe it to start with. So I thought, OK. I'm going to have to do a trade in diamonds because only by doing a trade in diamonds can you really get to the heart of the matter. So what I did was I came back to the UK, got $70,000 right, in cash, got a mate of mine who's a former SAS guy. In fact, he's a Kiwi SAS guy to come with me. right? And we went there and I had the $70,000 strapped around my race. So we fly into Syria, <laughs> go through the airport. Yeah. And then we went up country and we bought a, a parcel of diamonds, including a 27-carat stone. That's that's a big yeah, rock, yeah, 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 yeah. right? Big rock, yeah. Uncut, mm. okay? The reason being that when you've got a big rock like that, okay, it buys you access to the really bad people. Do you yeah. understand? Because they know you're serious. Yeah, they yeah. know you're serious. Yeah, they yeah, they yeah, know yeah. you've got something to buy and yeah. something to trade, right? Yeah. And so we got right into the heart of that nexus of illegal diamonds, yeah? Diamond miners wanting to sell them. And people with money who were bad people wanting to launder their cash. Yeah. That's what had been going on there. Right. Yeah. And you got right into the mix of this. Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. And then, and then of course, what we did, or what I did, was we came out with the diamonds. And you ha- by then you had to certify, well, you didn't, you didn't have to certify them. A lot of people weren't, obviously. But we certified them. I bought them out. And then I went to Antwerp, which is the world's yeah, biggest diamond right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And I went there, although I'd certified them, I went there and met all these diamond dealers and said, right, I've been to Sierra Leone, I've got no paperwork, I've got these diamonds to sell, what will you give me for them? To prove yeah. that you can still trade in them. Do you get my drift? Yeah. What did, so what, what is 70 Gs 
equate to? 70 grand's worth of diamonds. What did that equate to when you come back to Antwerp? Do you mean in terms of size? Yeah. No, in terms of money. Did in terms you, of money. Like, well, because- Would you buy a 70 grand stone or would it come back to Antwerp and be worth 140, double bubble or? It, it, it depends. If you'd gone there, if I'd gone there with my paperwork and yeah. it was certified, yes, then you'd make money. Yeah. But because I went there posing as someone who'd got illegal diamonds, right, okay. it's worth like you know, 30 grand. That's yeah, what, 40 okay, grand. You okay, get my drift. Okay. That's the difference. Okay. Yeah? yeah. But if you're if you're a terrorist organization and, and you've got, you know, 100 million in the bank and you know it's going to get seized or you've got to take a 50% hit on it, but you're still going to have 50%. Do you get my yeah, drift? Yeah, I agree. You're going to launder yeah, it into yeah, yeah. In, into into blood diamonds. Yeah. That's what they were doing. So why? What in Sierra Leone? I want to know why these groups were fighting, going around chopping people's arms off. Mate, what was the reason? What was the reason? What was the core behind it all? Mate, it's a really good question. I mean, the more you go into war zones, the more you realise mad, crazy stuff happens for reasons which you can almost not fathom. Like, is it resident evil? Um, Sierra Leone had. Sierra Leone was called the Swiss, the Switzerland, the West Africa independence from Britain. It is a beautiful country. The people are actually lovely. I mean, if you go there, you'd, you you know, they are lovely people, right? But the the rebels just believe that by spreading terror is a means of control. Yes. If I terrorize you, I can control you. Mm. Think about it. If you are worried that I'm going to come into your village, kidnap your children and chop their arms off if they're too young to be soldiers or recruit them as child soldiers if they're old enough, that will terrorize you and you will do whatever I want you to do. That's what it really boils down to. And the more you can control people, the more you can control the diamond trade and the drugs trade. So really, I guess it boils down to money. Yeah. Yeah. Terror equals control equals controlling, you know, the money. So the big dogs at the top are controlling it and the guys running around shooting and chopping yeah. arms or they're just doing all the donkey work. Yeah, that's wow. it. You've got it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fair play. So you went back into that country a few years after it all stopped, after the SAS coming to yeah. the 17 Irish out. You went back in. Yeah. Were you nervous going back in at all or did you know it all calm, completely calmed down? No, no. It was, It was. It was. yeah, it was obviously, um, <laughs> it wasn't secure at all. Yeah. Um, but... That I had a watershed moment in my life. So before that watershed moment, that's mm. why I started writing books. Mm. Before that, I was, I, I can't explain to you uh, <laughs> the lack of um, rationality or fear. I mean, I ended up in some very uh, crazy, dangerous situations on many occasions. Many, I can tell you stories will make your blood freeze. I would love to hear some of the most, the top three dangerous situations you've ever been in. Well, on that first trip, <laughs> that I mentioned to you, the one we went into Burma. Yeah. And funny enough, I was with the guy literally last week. We yeah. met up for a reunion. So I was there with my cameraman, my sound recordist, Tom Sheehan. He had to go back because eventually he just ran out of time. And I stayed behind to get some footage. We'd given a camera to one of the frontline fighters and he'd taken it right, right, right deep into enemy territory and brought us back a load of footage. So I was waiting and I was bored. And there was a, a guy there who was a carpenter working for voluntary services overseas, right? <laughs> Lovely guy, became a really good mate of mine. And there were all these uh, convoys going through at night, okay, through the jungle. And we didn't know what they were carrying. Was it weaponry? Was it drugs? Was it? We didn't know. And I said, I want to I want to go and film those convoys. And I want to find out what the fuck they're Do you yeah. mind me swearing? No, no. I want, don't worry about that. I want to find out what the fuck they're <laughs> yeah, doing, right? Yeah. So we got a bottle of Sang Tip. Yeah. Um, Sang Tip. That's based with amphetamine. 
That's a Thai whiskey. Yeah, Thai whiskey. And it actually is in base with amphetamine. Is it? Yeah. I didn't know. Anyway, yeah. we had a bottle, bottle of Sang Tip. So yeah. we took the bottle of whiskey up to the road at night. Yeah. Right? We slung our hammocks in the jungle and just sat there, me with my big camera, and we were just drinking the whiskey. Anyway, and s- several of these convoys came past and I filmed them, right? I'm standing there and filming them. And then and, and we get, and every time we're, we're getting a bit more tipsy. And then eventually a convoy stops and a guy gets down from the cab and there's a guy on top. And this truck's carrying timber. There's a guy on top with a big machete. And there's a guy got down from the cab, right? And he walks over to me and he can speak pidgin English. And he goes, you take film of truck. And I'm still running the camera. Yeah. I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, and he pulls out his pistol, puts it in my ribs and goes, you give me the camera or, or you die. And I said, well, you better shoot me then because you're not getting the camera, right? <laughs> And I'm still running it. And I said to him, and it's still running. And yeah. everything's being filmed. And not only that, if you shoot me, yeah. you're going to be answerable too, because I knew the head, you know, military guys yeah. in, in 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 the in the Karen base nearby. So there was this all this going on, right? And then my mate, the, the carpenter, the VSO guy, who's a big guy, probably six foot two, just comes under the truck and appears out of nowhere. And the guy's got the gun in my ribs, sees this other white guy, big guy, and thinks there's two of them. And, I, and at the same time, I can see his eyes are completely amphetamine yeah, day. Yeah? yeah. So he's out of his, yeah. off his face, yeah. right? So it, it was a, yeah, that was a bit scary. And and eventually he gave, he gave up and drove on. But the amazing thing was, <laughs> when we got to view the footage, I know, the next day or the day after, the only way you could view the footage was you, you had to get a generator, there's no electricity, get a generator, fire the generator, and use the camera to play it. And we viewed it. After that, right? We then went back, drank more whiskey, and I filmed three more convoys go through. <laughs> Straight after. Yeah. Can you believe it? Yeah, that is ballsy, mate. That is ballsy, though. So that's, the, that's one. And Love then, it. And then, and then another one, which is even more insane. So it, I'd, I'd been into Sudan. So Sudan is the world's longest running civil war, sadly. It's now South Sudan and Sudan, but at that stage it was one country. Yeah. So I'd been in there, I don't know, dozens of times all over, sometimes flying into airstrips in little tiny aircraft. No one had been there since the Second World War. Anyway, I got to know the rebel leader, Dr. John Garang, really well. This massive bear of a guy, right? Really, really impressive figure, okay? And and, and there was all these allegations of chemical and bi- biological weapons being used yeah. against against the the, the, the the forces of the South, okay? I said, look... If there's ever an allegation of use, call me. And and the reason I said that was because, sorry, I got to backtrack a bit. So after that first trip to yeah, Burma, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> we came back, made the film for Channel 4, and, and there were these devices dropped in the Burmese jungle that they thought were biological weapons. And so we went back. And before going back, I contacted Port and Down, the chemical and biological weapons establishment. And I hastened to add, I've never been in the military but they agreed to train us, or rather me, to take samples of chemical and biological weapons because mm. they wanted to analyse them mm. here to prove if they were being used. Mm. Did you get my drift? And there's a very specific process to taking samples that can be used in a court of law, mm. right? So they trained me to do that. How again. are you taking samples? Give me an example. Well, so you, if you're taking biological weapon samples, you go in there and you have the, you know, their files. They're like um, like test tubes, basically. Yeah, right? okay. Okay. And you've you got, you got labels, you've got tape to seal it. You've got the protective gear, yeah. you know, the mask, yeah. the gloves, the suits. Um, but really what it's about, it's about the chain of custody. So yeah. you have to fill out all the forms. You have to film yourself filling out the forms in situ. So you've got video evidence that you collected those samples right. okay. from that location. Okay. And then you, As proof to and chain back. of custody oh, yeah. all the way back. Brilliant. So we got trained to do that. And we'd been in again to Burma, across the front line, deep into 
enemy territory and taken these samples of what we believe were biological weapons, brought them back to the UK and got them analysed by Porton Down. And so I said to the guy who was the, um, the rebel leader in Sudan, this was a few years later, look, if there are ever any allegations of chemical weapons use, call me because I'll bring a team yeah. and we'll investigate. So I got a call and he said, you know, there was a UN convoy, a UN, United Nations aid convoy going through a village uh, and they, they, were, they were attacked and the bombs that dropped left off this gas and, and they've left these craters of red liquid. I was like, okay, we'll come. And so, and this is, this is a bit of an insane story. <laughs> so there were two former US Marines who were also trained to take chemical and biological weapons who, were, who, who teamed up with me. So we formed a, and what we were doing, we were filming it so we could put it on the news, right? But also taking samples to be analyzed. So we flew out, we flew into Nairobi and then we flew from there into Uganda got a, a four-wheel drive and drove illegally across the border into Sudan and got to this village, okay? <laughs> and then and then there are these craters and all this shrapnel and it's full of this red liquid, right? So they're going in to take the samples and I'm filming it. And this is where it gets a bit insane. So we're all in our protective gear, everything, you know, suits, gloves, masks. And I realise it's so hot I can't film because the mask is steaming up. Yeah. I can't see anything. Yeah. And the gloves are so bulky I can't use the equipment, you know? Yeah. I just can't. Yeah. So... Uh, there's a choice. Either I don't film it and we've got no chain of custody, yep. no proof we've taken the samples here, and we've got nothing to put on the news, or I take the kit off. So I took the kit off and I filmed the whole thing with no protective kit at all. Now that is insane. That is insane. Yeah, it's insane. So you're, it seems to me that your camera and your film footage is worth more than your life at times. Yeah, it's... it's um, I'm sure you've had guys say this to you before when you've had military guys talk to you, but there's something about um, trying try to think of it this way. So if you've been on the front line and you've been shot at mm. and you've not died, imagine how precious that makes your life feel. Yes. If When that happens to you, your mortgage, your argument with the wife, mm. your future career prospects. Nothing. Nothing. Mm. Just, this doesn't mean anything mm. at all. Someone could give you a million dollars in cash and you'd say it's point meaningless, yeah. you know, because I've just had someone try and kill yeah. me. Yeah. So that feeling of surviving someone trying to take your life away, it's, it, it's just the most exhilarating. Th there's nothing like it. Yeah. It's a drug like no other. So it's highly addictive. And what happens is... The more of that kind of stuff you do, and it's exactly the same with soldiers as it is for war reporters, the more you cannot actually feel at home or exist anywhere but in that situation. Because yeah. you come back, right? Imagine it. Yeah. You know, imagine I've just been out there taking chemical weapon samples with no protective covering kit, right? And it got it got even worse, actually, because what happened was then we had to bring it all out, right? So I've got it. I'm, I'm the guy carrying it. I've got lumps of shrapnel, Files of red liquid, you know, vegetation, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Wrapped up, taped up. And the guys, the two US Marine guys go, you go first. Because, <laughs> no, no, they were being good. Because they said, we think they're on to us. Go first. Yeah. So I leave uh, Uganda, right? Fly out to Nairobi. They come the next day. They have been torn apart, strip searched everything. Because because someone had found out what we've been doing. Do you right. understand? I had just got out. So they'd given you the heads up to get yes. out quickly. Right. Wow, so, I'm now, so I'm now in Nairobi and I'm thinking... Well, have the Ugandan government told the Nairobi authorities? And when I leave this airport, am I going to get... Clobbered, yeah. And I gonna, am I going to yeah, rot yeah, yeah. in an African jail for the rest of my life, which I don't want to do? Yeah. So I went to the airport 
And I, I went to BA and said, do you have any, because there was a BA direct flight to London. I said, do you have any tickets left? They said, I've got one first class ticket left. I said, how much is it? It was, I don't know, like eight grand. I said, I'll yeah. have it. Yeah. Here's my credit card. I paid for the ticket, right? So, and it was going out that night. Yeah. Okay. And I'm, I'm shitting my load. Because I don't mind, it, it's going to sound insane, but I didn't really deliberate about that thing about taking off the protective gear. That was like, this just has to be done. But I didn't want to get caught and yes. end up rotting in an African jail. So I'm at the airport and I'm thinking, I've got to get this stuff through a scanner. They're going to get me. Yeah. Shrapnel. Anyway, so, so one of these US Marine guys goes, do you want to pray? And I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not a practicing yeah, Christian, so, yeah. so I was like, I don't know what God you're going to pray to, but I'll have any God. I'll, I'll take anything I, I'll, right I, now. Anything, yeah. anything. <laughs> so we sit in the car, right, and he says these prayers, right, because like, 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 like some Americans are. He's quite a, you know, firm believer, and I'm sat there thinking, okay, you know, I hope this gets me through. What had actually happened was the other guy had taken my bag of samples, put it through the scanner for me, so when I came out. It had gone through anyway, yeah. and I was clean. I could get aboard the aircraft. Oh, result. You get my drift? Yeah, absolutely. Of course I do. Wow. So then you got them back. Yeah. Mate, that fear, you just said then, the only the, the biggest fear that I've had then is getting stuck or getting thrown into an African jail. Yeah. As a white lad. Yeah. Sat in there. Off yeah. you go, forgotten. No one knows who you are. What? Yeah. Jesus obviously. Christ. Obviously. That, that's not That's be... like a third world country jail will be... Yeah. Yeah. And not not only that, you know, look, let's be frank about it. You know, I had no right permission, clearance to be there from anyone and certainly not from the British government. Mm. So I could hardly expect the British government to come ride to the rescue. Do you get yeah, my drift? Yeah. You know, we were there as maverick freelancers. And that's the thing about the profession, being a war reporter. The people who really do the stuff that's really out there on the front line or behind the lines, they're on their own. Yeah. Freelancers, yeah, yeah. So how does how does it work then? You come back with the footage, and they say, right, we'll give you ten grand for that. How, how does the how's the business model work with Benefloor? It's exactly like that. Okay. I, I mean, I you know I, I can remember situations where I walked into a newsroom, having been you know wherever it was, and I can remember one situation where I walked into the, a newsroom of one of the major newscasters in the UK in London, right? Walked into the newsroom, and they'll say, "What have you got?" And I'll say, "Well, I've got you know, um, I've interviewed a slave trader. I've got you know." Um, I've got, you know, some, I've got a blown up T-32 tank. There's a shot down helicopter gunship, you know, and, and they'll say, right, show us. So you sit down and watch it. And I remember this one situation where the foreign news editor sat down and watched it. I'd been in, I think it was Sierra Leone. It could have been, I can't, it was some African war zone. And he watched all the stuff. He said, look, he said, we got white people dying in the Balkans. You know, Kosovo's kicking off. Yeah. Why do we want black people dying I mean, in Africa? Yeah. I mean, this is literally what he said, yeah. right? And I was like, okay, fair enough. And I pulled out my phone and I phoned the rival newscaster, yeah. literally in the news. In front of him. It said, right, you know, this is what I've got. Can I come over? And I said, yeah, come on over, shut right? And so I got off the mobile and he said, okay, hold on, don't be hasty. I said, right, what? what? And it wasn't about, it's not about the money. I, it was about how much time they would give you on air. Yes. So he said, I'll give you three minutes. I said, no, I want five. And that's, that's really, so it was, yeah, it was a crazy, crazy, crazy um, kind of way to survive. That was mad. What what year roughly was this one? The Sudan one? Uh, well, it, do you mean the chemical weapon? The one? chemical weapon one. Probably like 25 years ago, 30 years ago. So late, not so mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. And, what, and how many more war zones have you been in over the years? 
Uh, what other countries have you been to? I've been to, um, so Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, Niger, C- Congo, Sierra Leone, Algeria, Sudan, North Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, uh, all over. I mean, just about anywhere where there's been, you know, uh, bad stuff happening. And then all over South Latin America and South America, most of the Middle and Far East. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you just, that's wow. what you do. Wow. You know? Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah. Tell me about South America. Yeah. What were you doing in South America? Was that drug related? I have I have reported on um, on uh, the narco wars, for want of a better word. But but the the the, the biggest kind of expedition I did there, and and again, it's another crazy story. So <laughs> don't have much of it to tell really because I'd had a bit of a. Um, yeah, something had gone wrong with a personal relationship with a yeah. young lady, yeah. okay? And I had to get away. Yeah. She was a little bit crazy, lovely but crazy. And I thought, I've got to get away. I've got to, I thought, I've got to get away somewhere where she can't find me, right? So I thought, so I signed up to take part in a Brazilian government expedition to find an uncontacted tribe in the Amazon, okay? I'm not joking, this is true. Mate, you can't actually write this. I, I don't, <laughs> this is true. Yeah, amazing. So I signed up for this expedition. <laughs> Uh, FUNAI is the uh, Brazilian government Indian agency. And there's a serious reason they do these expeditions, because if you can go into the Amazon and find and prove that there's a tribe that exists living in the Amazon and you can demarcate their territory, it is then legally protected. So you save that patch of rainforest. You right, get my drift. Okay. It's a really serious, okay, you know, yeah. this is a serious proposition. So we had to find this tribe and they were called the Julei, okay? And our guides not really guides, but helpers guides, were a tribe called the Uru El Wau who were the last tribe contacted before this one, if we could contact yeah. them to get my drift. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I joined this six-month expedition where we went in, and the last contact this tribe had had with, with white men, with outsiders, was when some illegal miners, gold miners, had tr- gone onto their land and they'd shot them with poisoned arrows. And the arrows they used were these massive, I mean, like, I don't know, six, seven-foot-long arrows, with these bamboo heads, serrated heads like that, and they'd coat them with curare, which is the anticoagulant you bleed to death. Yeah, yeah. And the last people have been shot with those from out of the forest shadows. So yeah, that that was a that was a incredible, incredible experience. And we we did find them. That I sounds mean. crazy. Just break that down. <laughs> you fly into South America. Yeah. yeah. What are you doing in the rainforest? How are you kipping? What are you wearing? What's it like going for the rainforest? What are you looking for? Do you know where you're going? They had an idea where they were. Oh, you know, you, they had an idea where they were, of course, because, you know, one of the guys who'd been shot survived, okay? Okay. And we went and interviewed him, and he showed us the scars, yeah? So he'd been shot by the arrows, but he hadn't bled to death. Because, obviously, if someone can bandage you up, you know, you can get treated, yeah. you know. But if, if you're not treated, curare will make you bleed to death. It's an anticoagulant. It stops your blood from clotting. Um, so we knew roughly where they were. And the Urue Wawau, our guides, um, you know, they, they could speak a language which was so close to what we believe the language of this tribe was that they could communicate with them, okay? So then what you were doing is you, you, were, you were finding their camps. Yes. You were finding their paths. I mean, we, we used to find these little paths through the, through the rainforest and there would be these punji sticks, sharpened spikes, set in the path for you to tread on. 
you know, basically saying come no further. Yeah. So there were lots and lots of signs of them. So there's you, traps as well trying to get you, yeah. prevent you from coming too close. Yeah, prevent you coming too close. And you would see whether they stripped bark from tree or they'd been, they'd been picking fruit or they'd been hunting. You get, so you were following all these signs and we were, you know, we were camping out in the jungle. So you'd sling a hammock and you'd put up a mosquito net and sleep out in the jungle. And you'd wake up in the morning, your mosquito net would be covered in all these amazing insects, like butterflies, like, you know, the size of both your hands, yeah. and huge stick insects and stuff. And you'd see the paw marks where jaguars would prowl the camp at night, you know, trying to scavenge food and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, this was, yeah, it was just amazing, amazing experience. Um, and eventually we, we, you know, we got, we found where their village was and we, we made contact. I was filming and I can remember the filming. I must tell you the story about the Tukundira as well. So I remember the filming and I remember filming the tribe for the, like the first time they've ever, they've ever. Ever, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, this guy, this, one of the guys came up to me and I, it's on film and peered right into the camera. So the camera was like here, like if seeing if he could see himself inside it. Yeah. It was, yeah, absolutely um, mind-blowing and the two things that stick in my mind also about that trip is one of the Uru Ewawao guides a guy called his name was Purei I got on with him really well and I'd had a nightmare one night and he came up to me in the morning so just come with me and we went off into the forest a bit and he said and he sat me down he told me exactly what I had dreamed in, he told you yes, what you had dreamed yes, okay in detail wow so you can imagine some guy sits you down, some some Amazon Indian, and says, this is what you dreamed about. And he tells you the exact dream in great detail, right? And at the end of it, I said, how the hell did yeah. you do that? He said, we just know. And then not only that, so this is what you need to do about it, right? Wow. <laughs> and then the other thing that, that sticks in my mind is there's an ant in the Amazon. It's called the Tukundira. And that, that, that translates as the bullet ant, yeah. right? Or it's called also called the 24-hour ant because you die within 24 hours if the sting kills you. It's about that big, yeah. right? It's the most venomous ant, venomous ant uh, on earth. And I was walking through the jungle w with, you know, the team. And again, I had, you know, big pack on, all the battery strapped on. But I also had a, um, a camera brace with the camera on my shoulder. So you're covered in all these straps, right? Walking through the jungle, I felt something like crawling around there and I went to grab it it was a tukundera and it it bit me on the nipple I'm not joking on that nipple there right and I felt I'd be shot like like I'd be shot by a bullet it was so painful right I just ripped everything open like my shirt all the straps and everything and and pulled it off and one of the Indians came and said one of the um, guides because it took a deer yeah and then you know all the treatment and everything happened and the mandibles were stuck in there Gee. So when I pulled it off, the head had come off, but the mandibles were still in there. So yeah. did that infect you? Yeah, it was. It was. It was not. I didn't obviously. Didn't, I didn't die, but it was. Yeah, I was. It was touch and go for. It's not. It's really. You do not want to yeah. be bitten by a tukundera. It's not. Not a good thing to happen at all. Um, uh, yeah, lots. Just of explain to me what it's like walking through a jungle. Is it like we see on the telly? Like, is it you? You pulling bushes out of the way, or is it actually paths for everyone to walk, or is it literally you are going through the rainforest? If you're walking through virgin jungle, so that, you know, like, like we were most of the time, there's very little on the forest floor because all the light, all the sunlight's in the canopy, yeah. very little light filters down to the forest floor. So very little grows there. It's actually quite easy to walk through yeah. virgin jungle. Okay. Um, if it's secondary jungle, i.e. if it's been cut or disturbed, 
and the canopy's been broken and light can filter down, it then becomes much, much more difficult. You do then kind of have to cut your way through. But where we were looking for um, the, this tribe, it was mostly virgin jungle. And mostly you were following their paths that mm. they made. Now, you or I would not be able to see them. Mm. We wouldn't know that that was a path. But the the, the, the Uruawa wild guys we were with, the, the, the tribe that had been contacted just for a few years, they could follow the other yeah. tribe's path. And they, so that's why they were leading the what way. What was that feeling like for you arriving and going, we've actually found them, knowing that they'd killed all the other people before? Uh, yeah, there were moments where, you know, we weren't armed. No. We were not armed because that's that is the policy. If you go it, that's the FUNAI, the British, the Brazilian government's, um, you know, policy. If you go in looking for um, a uncontacted tribe, you cannot go armed because mm. you know, if you go in armed, two things: one, it sends a signal to them yeah. that you're gonna you're coming in 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 a warlike way, and secondly, you obviously might be tempted to kill them because mm. it's about your own survival. Mm. So we we were unarmed. So all you then have is your you have the the Indians who you know who are with you, or the tribe that with you can speak their language, mm. and you have the hope that by your you hang stuff in the jungle, these offerings. So if you can imagine it, you know you hand pots, pans, yeah. things they might be machetes, mm. things you hope they can use. They take them as gifts, as say, gifts. Okay, to say we are come you in walking peace. in like hands in the air, like we've got nothing. I'm trying to get my head around that bit because that must be nerve wracking. Bit. Well, I, I was walking and filming. Okay. So I'm walking in with a camera on my shoulder. And yeah, knowing you from what I'm hearing, there was no uh, no worries about you just carrying on filming. It, it, it was just part and parcel. Okay, so, yeah. so so the thing about the thing uh, when you are a cameraman in that situation you've been doing Okay, I'll, try and, I'll talk about an example because it's hard to explain. I, I can remember being in it could have been Eritrea or Ethiopia and it was a famine, okay? You turn up there and there's a woman with her three-year-old child and the child is stick thin and about to die, okay? You're going to help, yeah. right? You're yeah. going to do something, yeah. feed it, uh, give it some water, yeah. give it some shelter, right? Try and get it out of there maybe. I turn up there with a camera, I have to film that child die. Jesus. Well, I do because that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's what, what I'm there for. Yeah. And yeah. I need to put that child on the news hoping that that will... You know, a knock-on effect for everyone else. Yeah, okay. So the point I'm making is you, when you've been doing that for years and years and years, the normal Immune. human okay. reactions to situations are completely gone. Mm. You don't behave like that. That's why it's so, it's a very, very unhealthy thing to be doing because you have to make yourself into just something that no human being would naturally be. It's a very, very strange mm. yeah, process. So that's why you can walk into these situations which seem completely insane and you just carry on okay. doing what yeah. you know you've got to do yeah. does that okay. make sense yeah it does it does it does tell me about ethiopia what year were you in ethiopia and what actually is ethiopia like when you were there i, I can't remember i mean i've been there several times it would have been the 90s or the early 2000s and you know it, we were there i mean we were actually there we weren't there to film the famine. We were there to illegally cross the border and try and get into another country where there was a war going on. That's standard. <laughs> standard operating procedure. That's what we were really there for. But, you know, along the way, we came across, you know, um, yeah, uh, really, really um, appalling scenes of famine. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, it's looking back on it. If I watch that footage now, you know, it's, it's just like Bob Geldof filmed yeah. it. It's the same kind of stuff. And I, if I watch that footage now, it's like, it tears you apart. But at the time, 
the mindset of people who do that job is you heartless isn't the right word, but you deconstruct the normal human reactions to other human beings in suffering to such a degree you can do your job. Yeah, okay. And it's, 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 it's horrendous. very well put. That's it's very horrendous. Well put. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, and, and the other thing about it is what we used to do. It can be quite, it can be seen as quite cold as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what we used to do, myself and other, you know, war reporters, you know, you would just go to the bar. After you'd done what you know your your stint, you go to the nearest bar and you drink yourself under the frigging table, yeah. Because there was nothing else, yeah. You know, so it's in 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 many ways it's it's there's so many similarities to being a a soldier on the front line, and this is why, especially elite forces soldiers, often, you know, segue into that profession mm. either doing security or becoming cameraman. Yeah, they've got the same skills. The same ability same to mindset, isn't it? mindset yeah. and remove themselves from the human situation. Um, I mean, I can remember being in situations where I've, I've been in lots and lots of war situations with former elite forces guys, former SAS or SBS, whatever it might be. And I can remember guys saying to me, you are madder than we are. Because <laughs> when we're here, we've got a gun yeah. and we're taking shelter and trying to see if we need to return fire. You're there with no weapon, not trying to take shelter, trying to film this stuff happening. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Tell me about any involvement with uh, Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden or Afghanistan or Iraq. <clears throat> the nearest I've come to, um, you know, the heart of darkness in, in Iraq or Afghanistan is in the books I've written, to be honest with you. And that's because I've, you know, I've worked with some elite forces guys who've been into really, really, you know, very, very tough. Probably the most powerful story of all is the Afghan story. Um, I'll just tell it briefly. Mm. It's told in the book, Bloody Heroes. And, and, and I think I, we were talking about it before we started recording. The point about it is I can sit down with anybody. I could sit down with a, prostitute, a child slave, a president, you know, a king from a royal palace, a guy on the streets, and I can talk their language because I've I've been in all those situations. Yeah. I've interviewed all these people. You know, That's a gift. Yeah. It's Huge a, gift. It's something that you learn mm, along the absolutely. way. You know, and so I, 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 can, I can sit down with soldiers who've been in pretty much any situation. I can say, I know exactly what it's like. So, so you know, guys have a habit of coming to me and, and telling stories. Anyway, so in the Afghan situation, um, I don't know if you remember it, right after 9-11, our forces went into Afghanistan and there was a fort in the north of Afghanistan called, um, called uh, it, it translates as the Fort of War, Mazar al-Sharif. And um, I don't know if you remember or not, but there were like 600 Al-Qaeda and Taliban imprisoned in this ancient Lawrence of Arabia, you know. You said they for, were imprisoned there? Yeah, they were imprisoned. Okay. We'd captured them, okay. right? They are imprisoned there and they were being interrogated. And actually they were being interrogated by two guys from the CIA, from what's called the CIA's Special Activities Division, yeah. which is the paramilitary wing of the CIA, right? And the guard force was just a few dozen, um, not even that, one dozen uh, American, British elite forces guys, right? And then and then, a much larger number of the Northern Alliance, so the Afghan forces fighting on our side, yeah. right? And there was an uprising. And in the uprising, they seized one of the CIA guys, Johnny Mike Spam, right? 
And they, so they took him and the mm. other CIA guy just managed to escape and raise the alarm. And so around about no more than a dozen special boat service guys, SBS guys, who were in the nearby town yeah. were scrambled. They went to the fort and they had to try and break the siege. So there's basically two dozen British and American elite forces guys against 600 diehard Al-Qaeda and Taliban doing suicide charges with grenades and suicide belts to blow them up. I mean, it, you know, that six or seven day siege is one of the most heroic and extraordinary battles you can ever read about. Yeah. It's, it, it's just beyond beyond anyone's. And if, you, if you wrote that as a movie outline, people would say that could could never have happened because yeah. they, they succeed. They succeed in actually keeping all the prisoners in that fort and fighting them off and actually corralling them in there and putting down the uprising. And eventually it reaches this stage where they're inside the fort. And there's, there's some amazing stories in there. There's this one guy, right? who's a SEAL, an American SEAL, so the equivalent American unit to the SBS. Yes. Johnny, uh, uh, Steph Bass. Yeah. And he's embedded with the Special Boat Service. So what Special Boat Service and, and the SEALs or SAS and Delta Force, yes. they do the exchange programs. Yeah. So so this, this American SEAL is with those SBS guys. And he knows that a fellow American... Johnny Mike Spann, the CIA guy, has been taken by the bad guys, yeah. right? And so at the end of that first day, after this horrendous firefight to try and keep these these prisoners in the fort, the SBS are pulling out, okay? And it's dusk. And uh, and Steph Bass, the, the SEAL guy, without a word to anyone, just goes back over the wall on his own. By himself. Right? Jeez. And what he does is he fights his way across the whole of the fort until he gets to a vantage point and you can see into the southern part of the fort where all the Al-Qaeda and, 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 and uh, um, Taliban guys are, all the prisoners are heavily armed. They've yeah. broken into the arms store, armed to the teeth, right? Until he can see the CIA guy, Johnny Mike Spann, okay? And what does he do? He can see him. What does he do? What would you do? Can't go and rescue him. He's one against 600. Yeah. What do you do? You know they're going to torture his soul. What do you do? He killed him. He killed the CIA yeah. guy? Shot and killed him. Well, he didn't know if he was dead or alive. To take him out of his misery because he knew what was going to happen. Absolutely. Wow. And then he fought his way all the way back again, got back over the wall, right? Meanwhile, one of the SBS guys had gone in to try and find him. So they came back together, the two yeah. of them, right? Got back over the wall, said not a word, and then... Later, the story came out. Imagine that. And then after seven days of the siege, when eventually they put the siege down, they, they, they get right into the, the heart of the southern part of the fort. And the last real diehards are in this underground cellar, like bunkers, cellars in the fort. Okay. And they can't get them out. They don't want to fight their way down in there for obvious reasons. Yeah. Loads of them will die. Yeah. So what they realize is that they can flood and burn them out. So first of all, they, they, they flood the cellars and then they f put fuel down and they light it and the last come out. And, the, and one of the guys who comes out of the cellars right at the end, I don't know if you remember this as well, he became known as the American Taliban. He's a, he's a white American guy with a big beard who mm. converted to Islam and was fighting alongside them. Wow. Yeah. How mad is that? Crazy story. That is crazy. Crazy story. Crazy story. And that guy who who you know, shot one of his own. Is he still alive, that guy? Yeah. 
What do you, do you mean the guy who took the, the guy, shot? No, the guy who shot the CIA. Yeah, he's still around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he should have got, in my view, he should have got a high valor medal for that. I was just about to say the medal. Yeah, he was. They tried to, they tried to do him for, they tried to court martial him. You're joking no, me. When they found out, they tried to court martial him. They tried to prosecute so that's a him. a double whammy on him. My God. We, I mean, there were there were there were efforts made by, from the British side to give him a high valor medal, but from the American side they tried to. Why would they do that? How mad's that? I've had Staz on here, who's a good friend of mine. He got the, the gallantry award from mm. the Queen mm. for something that happened in, I think it was 2003. Mm. They did it because... Surely they would back your man. Surely as a country you'd go, hold on a minute, he had the balls to go over there to look for his man, to take him... Like I agree with you completely. But, you know, the law's an ass, isn't it? The law's an ass. And it, often it is. So, you know, he ended up, he, he ended up okay. I mean, it, it, you know... It's a long story, so I can't go into great yeah. detail. But all I can say is that man, he is a hero. An absolute hero. Of the story, he's the biggest hero of all. Yeah. He went back in at the end alone against 600 yeah. Al-Qaeda and Taliban who were armed to the teeth. Yeah. He'd broken into the weapons store. He went in alone to find his fellow American and either rescue him or make sure they wouldn't torture, torture his soul. Bloody hell. Whew. That is ballsy, isn't it? What year was that, roughly? Well, straight after 9-11. So, you know, literally months after 9-11. Yeah, these, okay. these guys were the first guys in. Do you remember? Yeah. They, do you remember they went on a horseback and they were the CIA were advisors to the Northern Alliance? Yeah. That's That was how it originally started. So these guys were there right at the start. Mm. This is right at the start of mm. the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. And just, an, just, just a story like no other. Mm. Siege of the Fort of War. That's just, that what it was called Siege of the Fort Walls. Yeah, well, that's it? what it became known as. Yeah. I mean, you know, the book I wrote is called Bloody Heroes because it it tells three stories. Actually, it tells the story of a of a, the SBS doing a marine counter terrorist operation. In fact, in the Channel, there was a ship sailing towards the UK. They thought it was carrying a massive chemical weapon, so they had to go and take it down. So they did that, and then they deployed to Afghanistan. So and then it ends up in the Fort of War story. Yeah, just yeah. What other book have you written where you've actually been blown away? And what's it like sitting down with someone in the SAS, SBS, actually then pouring their heart out, telling you everything that's going on? Because I kind of guess it may be a little bit similar to this. When I'm interviewing these powerful people, they're telling you their whole life in 90 minutes, 120 minutes. And after they leave, going, God, that was cathartic. That was like a therapy session because they've just gone vroom. And that's, that's crammed into like 90 minutes. For someone like you, how do you get all the information out of them, are you sitting there with them for days on end? Are they yeah. recording in a, a, a in a in a speakerphone, then sending you clips? No, it's it's face to face, and it's it's intense like nothing else you can imagine. Yeah. So, I've had six foot four, you know, seasoned elite forces veterans in my study, bawling their eyes out, literally sitting there in tears. Tears streaming down their faces because they're telling you stuff they've never told anyone else before. Yeah, it's it's extremely intense. Yeah, and I think they can, you know, <clears throat> you can't talk to people about this stuff unless you think they understand and they've been there and they yeah. relate. So they probably have never spoken about the majority of what they're telling you. So yeah, days and days of that on end. You 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 drill down into stories which. Yeah, they've never even thought they were ever going to speak about. Yeah. So it is 
a process of, and it's a process of trust. Mm. You can only talk to somebody um, about that kind of shit if you if you believe that they are a sympathetic listener. Yeah, they've shared experience. They're on your side, and you're going to help them tell their story in a way which is real. Mm. You know, so it's it's a really yeah. That there's there's you end up I end up a dried husk yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. And then you've got to sit down and write it, which means you relive it all. And then you have to sit with them again and read it to them. And, you know, it, it's it's a hell of a process. When I went through it with Des over, of Des Powell over Bravo 3-0. What like, a lovely man Des Powell is. Fantastic bloke. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. What a lovely human being. What a story. Yeah. 20 years in the SAS. Yeah. I mean, just just an <laughs> absolute star. And I can remember, I can remember moments with Des. <laughs> I can remember moments with Des. You're probably not going to believe me. Mm. I remember it's Des with Des me saying, "Listen, bloody tell it like it is. Yeah. Don't sugarcoat it. I need to know what it was you know, like." And, and this is me to Des. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Des is a 20 years veteran with the SAS. <laughs> he's going and he's going. You're beating up on me here, and I'm like, Des, you've got to give it to me yeah, real. Yeah. You know, um, that's why you're the most respected or one of the most respected authors out there, because you are real. And because you've been on the front line, people are like, he gets it. He's seen everything. He's been ballsy character himself, but just without a gun. Yeah. That's 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 a lot of trust in there, Damien. Yeah, it helps. It helps. And it, it probably it probably explains why Des didn't just beat me up. You know mm. what I mean? He was like, all right, fair enough. And we, we got there. You know, what, what I wanted him to do was dig deep into his own experience. I didn't want to know what they did. Mm. I want to know what it felt, felt like. The feeling, I agree. Do you understand the difference? Yeah. yeah. You're you're in Iraq in 2003, deep behind the lines, yeah. hunting for scuds, right? You've been there for several days. Your comms, your communications are so screwed, you do not know if any of your messages are getting through. And you're freezing cold. And then, and you're hunted by the enemy. Yeah. You're finding stuff. You're reporting it back like you should be. You've no idea if any of that is getting through. You've no idea if any of the air missions are going in to yeah. take out what you're reporting. Yeah. And then it starts to snow yeah. and turns into the worst winter in living memory yeah. in Iraq. Yeah. yeah. Now, I get that, but what does it feel like? I agree. How do you keep going? Mm. Why do you not just get in your Land Rover and drive the hell for leather to the Saudi Arabia border? Yeah. Why do you continue doggedly pursuing that mission, facing all those things that you faced? And, and, and although your radios are not functioning, you're still getting the odd snippet of information mm. and you've already learnt that Bravo 2-0, because Des' story is the Bravo 3-0 control, yeah. yep. you've already learnt that Bravo 2-0 look like they've all been captured or killed. And they lost three men. Yeah. And in that situation, what keeps yeah. you going? What's the feeling inside you that makes you not give up? Yeah. That's what you need to get down into. Yeah. You need to drill down into that. Yeah. And, and you know, sometimes guys who've been in the forces for, uh, you know, for a while, they're not, the, they're not always the best at talking about their feelings. Mm. Yeah. That's what you've got to pull out of them. Agree. That's what you've got to pull out of them. Because that's what people want to know. Mm. Tell me about a book you've written about drugs. Well, the, the the most um, the most compelling one that I've written about drugs is Operation Relentless. Because so about eight years ago, an email pops into my uh, inbox via my website, and it's from a guy called Mike Snow, and it just says, 
I'm the SAF, former SAS guy who hunted down Victor Boot. Do you want to talk, right? Now, Victor Boot was the second most wanted man after Osama bin Laden at the time. He's the Russian arms dealer. He was the billionaire who we hunt, we'd been hunting yeah. him for years and years and years. Yeah, He was known as the Merchant of Death, okay? Mm. Um, so I read this email. I'm like, okay. So I emailed him back saying, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, why have you emailed me? I said, I read one of your books. Do you want to meet? I said, okay. So, and I found out he lived in the northeast of England. I live in Dorset. Mm. So we put a pin in the map, equidestant. We found a premier inn. We booked in for two days and I drove up there. And on the drive up, I'm thinking, this is a former SAS guy who, read, who led an operation of the Drugs Enforcement Agency, the DEA in the States, yeah. to hunt down the second most wanted man in the world, <laughs> a Russian arms dealer called, Vic, called Victor Boot. Why does he want to talk to me? Yeah. Do you get my drift? Yeah, of course. What, what's in it for him? So we, so I turn up there. I didn't know what you looked like. Walk into the hotel lobby. There's a guy sat there. And I knew his nickname was The Bear, okay? Yeah. And there's a guy sat there, just about my height, about five foot six. But as wide, yeah. right? and, uh, not just as wide, he's as wide with muscle, with a completely bald head, looking like a face like a sack of claw hammers. I mean, really looking like... <laughs> Really looking like your archetypal, yeah. Uh, and I'm like, he's the guy. So we go into his hotel room and he sits down and he tells me the story for about an hour and my jaw is on the table, right? Yeah. And I, and this is the point. And then I said to him, why are you talking to me? What, what What's your reason? And he said, do you think I shaved my hair? I said, I don't know. He said, no, no. He said, I had hair until quite recently, until a few months ago. He said, it's all fallen out. He said, I've got leukemia. This is the result of the treatment. I may not have many months to live. This is the one good thing I've done in the world. I want my story told. Jesus. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, we told the story. Yeah, so I mean, basically, he was because after being he was in twenty three SAS, the territorial unit. Then after the SAS, he went to Africa and became a bush pilot. He used to fight. I mean, this this guy is the most amazing guy. You either love it. He's a Marmite character. Yeah. Out the yin yang. No, he was called the bear. I thought he was called the bear because he was a bear like character. Mm. No, he was called the bear because when he was a kid, it was about fifteen. He got given one of his family's old World War II flying jackets, okay? And he cut the arms off and turned it inside out because he wanted to have one of those kind of like sheepskin waistcoaty things that were mm. popular at the time, yeah. if you remember. Mm. Do you remember? Mm. Right. And when he went around to see one of his friends wearing that, his dad, the dad of his friend couldn't remember his name and said, a guy called for you, uh, he, he looked like the bear. Yeah. That's how he got the okay. nickname, right? And he'd always been told at school by, by the teacher that he hated, you are a piece of scum. You will never amount to anything in life. That's what his teacher told wow. him. So that's why yeah. after school, he was determined to get into the SAS, to get my drift. That's mm. what drove him on, right? And after the SAS, he went to Africa and he trained as a pilot because Someone from his social class, let's just be frank about it, does not train yeah. in the UK to become a pilot. Yeah. You just don't, yeah. right? You know, in Africa, because he was a white man, 
you know, and, and he had connections there, he could get away with it. Mm. So he trained as a pilot and then he specialised basically in flying DC-3s, which are a World War Two era twin-engined aircraft into the world's worst, worst war zones, carrying everything you can possibly imagine. That's what he did for decades, right? And in that process, he got to meet Victor Boot, who was doing the same thing, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and, 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 you know... So he got to meet the biggest arms dealer in the world. Yeah, yeah, and work with him as and well. And was in with him. Yeah. So then, you know, Interpol have been after Boot, the UN have been after Boot, the CIA, the... the, 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 the the British, everybody's been hunting this guy. No one can get him. And eventually he's holed up in Moscow, right? And uh, President Bush, it was at the time, go to the DEA, the Drugs Enforcement Agency, and say, can you get Victor Boot? And the reason they want, uh, one of the reasons they wanted to get him, why they, they thought they should use the DEA, was because he had been doing deals with uh, narco gangs in South yeah. America, Latin America, South America. Obviously, you know, arms deals with yeah. very, you know, those, those, those narco billionaires in South America, and that and, and Central America, they have billions and billions yeah. and billions of cash. Of cash. Yeah. So you've got yeah. very lucrative arms deals yeah. to do. So that's why the DA got involved. And the DA, well, you know, well, how do we get to him? How on earth are we going to get to Victor Boot? Mike Snow. Mike Snow. Yeah. Because Mike Snow knows him, has flown the same routes, has walked the same paths, and he's a he's a poacher can we make him a poacher turned gamekeeper yeah. and they teamed up mike snow with two guys um oh gosh name's gone out of my head carlos and ricardo so carlos was a former guatemalan military um officer who had turned drugs dealer who had been caught by the dea and been turned by the dea and turned into a, a poacher yeah. gamekeeper, yeah. right? And th they don't become DE agents because you can't. If you've been on the wrong side, you can't become a DE agent formally. Yeah. What you become, I can't, there's a special phrase for it. It's like a special special informer or something. Yeah. Basically, you become an undercover for the DEA, yeah. okay? So Carlos was an undercover for the DEA and Ricardo was another undercover for the DEA. I think he was Colombian. Again, he was, he'd been very, very bad, caught by the DEA and turned by them. And so... So Mike Snow led this team of these two guys and then with a couple of American DEA guys kind of managing them yeah. to put together this sting operation where they were going to allegedly sell, get Victor Boot to sell hundreds of millions of arms to the FARC, the Colombian rebel, uh, narco rebel organization, right? Yeah. Everything up to, to, to surface to air missiles to shoot down American planes. Yeah. That was the sting they put together the to get Boot to draw him out of Moscow, to draw him to a place to do the deal where they could arrest him. And that's what Mike Snow had done. And that's that that's the book that we then wrote, which became which is called Operation Relentless. It's wow. his story. Wow. And he wanted that story told because it's the he one passed. good thing he'd done in the world. And he wanted the story told. And actually it's even more poignant than that. It, truth be told, because he didn't tell me this at the time when we met, but I learned afterwards. He's become he's become a good friend, you know? I mean, like I say, he's a Marmite character. Most people probably wouldn't like him. I do like him. Yeah. He's blunt. You, you would think he is uneducated, uncouth, and all those stereotypes. He is not. He can quote Buddhist philosophy at you. He can he can read you Buddhist poetry. His his library is esoteric in a way that would just be you would find almost unbelievable. Yeah. He has educated himself. Uh, he's a he's a man of 
hidden depths and, and, and so many facets. But you wouldn't see that if you just yeah. knew him On a superficially. Level, yeah, yeah. superficially. Okay. Is he still alive today? He's still alive, yeah. Anyway, and, and the point is, he also wanted the book written because in the process of doing the sting on Victor Boot and then the court case and all the, you can imagine, all the crap that came with it, he became estranged from his wife, who was his childhood sweetheart, because of the stress. Yeah. And he wanted the book written to say to her, this is what we achieved, or this is what I achieved, and to get back with her. Did he get back? Yeah, he got back, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. What a story. Yeah, great story. What a story. Yeah. What happened to Victor Boot? So he was tried in the States um, very, very cleverly. Uh, he said nothing at trial, not a word. Nothing in his defence whatsoever. Because obviously what, what, what you know the Americans wanted to do is they wanted to do a plea bargain with him. Yeah. They wanted to get him into the States, do a plea bargain. He wouldn't have to stand trial. And he would tell them everything he knew because he knew, you know, everything about the inner workings of the uh, of the Kremlin and, you know, Moscow's arms dealing around the world, you know, and, and they're selling weapons to the enemies of the West. That's basically what mm -hmm. it was about. Um, and Victor Boot told them nothing. He said nothing in his defence at trial. He deliberately hired a lawyer that everybody thought was useless. So the lawyer would get blamed for him going down for 25 years. Whereas actually he did it deliberately because he knew, you know, the way it works is if you are former Russian intelligence and if you've been a, 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 a tool of the Russian state as he was, if you spill your guts to a foreign power, yeah. not only will you never go back to Russia, but they will find you. And they'll find your family. I agree. Remember yeah. what happened to the Skripals here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You will get. Yeah. So he understood the. the, the so the, he kept stum. He kept stum. What did he get in the end? He got twenty-five years in America. In the states. Is he still there? In, no, in prison? because recently he was swapped in that prisoner swap for. Britain. Was that him? Was yes, it? that's him. Bloody hell! That's the guy they swapped. So he got banged. He, he got moved back to Russia. Is he banged up in Russia? Is he a free man? No, in Russia? free man. Obviously, celebrated wow. in Russia. Celebrated in Russia. Wow. Yeah. What a mad story. And when that prisoner swap was taking place, yeah. you know, like Mike phoned me up and said, you know, this is not good. Because he... He'll be at it again. Do you understand? Yeah, he put course. him behind bars, yeah. but this is not good. Mm. Does Mike Snow get the fear of him being out in Russia? or is Mike That's like, what I mean. Yeah, okay. And not just Mike, but the other... The, the other two, DEA the team. Colombian, the DA team, the, 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 the Guatemalan. Guys, yeah, yeah okay. they're all like... This just... It's not cool? No. No, okay. For obvious reasons. Yeah. It's obviously not cool, is it? What year was this when he came out, roughly? When he was swapped? Yeah. It was last year. Yeah. Yeah. Recently. What What else have you done? Like, we could go on for hours here. This is fascinating, <laughs> by the way, Damien. This is really fascinating. When did you first start writing books? Was it 2000, about 20 years ago? Yeah, about 20 years ago. And And what happened was, the reason why, you know, I said there was a... Now, there's night and day in, in my life that, that there's a watershed. So I I had spinal surgery. So, yeah, something, yeah, I just, uh, anyway, <laughs> had an operation on my spine, the L1, L2. Are you okay today? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I went in and was seven hours under the knife. It was an emergency operation. Um, it's a long story, probably don't have time to go into it, but, but the long and short of it is that I'm a, it's a miracle I'm alive and it's even more than a miracle that I'm not paralyzed from, you know, here down. That's what should probably, you know, touch wood. 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, so mate. Yeah. That's not. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing, mate. So, I was a year in recovery. Couldn't go to a war zone, obviously. Yeah. What year was this? Two thousand. Okay. Maybe slightly later. No, it must be around there. Anyway, um, and during that year, um, I was approached by a publisher. And the publisher had heard about a story that I'd been working on as a from a war zone, and at a dinner party in London, some friend of mine told the story, and the publisher said, "That is an amazing story. You know, could we get that as a book?" So I was approached by this publisher, and they said, "Would you write it as a book?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, I, I can't go anywhere. You know, yeah, I'll give it." So that's why I wrote my okay. first book, and that book, you know, was an international bestseller that. You know, kind of, and that was called. It was called Slave. It's just a book about a modern day slave in Africa. So I was filming, you know, that story. A modern day slave in Africa. Yeah, yeah. Tell me what a modern day slave in Africa looks like. What? What exactly? Like, Man, I mean, that's just, just bonkers, right? Yeah, it's bonkers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, the, the the first time I went to to the Sudan was actually because we'd been I'd been in Burma doing that biological yeah. weapons story, yeah. sampling those biological weapons. <laughs> I love how you can laugh about it now. <laughs> but this is a funny story. And this very well-known uh, Tory politician turned up. What was his name? I can't tell you the name because some of the stuff What's that happened. What's his surname? I, I, I can't, <laughs> mate, I can't tell. How many playing? Because some of the stuff that happened yeah, it, okay. it was a bit. Yeah. Anyway, it's a she. She turned up in. Um, uh, it's like a game of guess who, isn't it? Do you have glasses? <laughs> Ginger ear? Freckles. <laughs> she turned up in, in 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 the headquarters of the uh, the 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 red rebel group where we were, you know the Karen rebel group yeah. where we were where we had gone from to take the biological weapon samples, and she found out that there were allegedly these two white reporters, you know, deep inside enemy territory, territory taking biological mm. weapon samples to bring them back to Port and Down. She didn't believe it. She said, "I do not believe a word of this." Mm. She said. And she left a card, and on a card it said, uh, you know, contact me if you are who you say you are. So when I got back to the UK, I contacted her. I met her in the House of Lords yeah. for tea. <laughs> and she said, so I told the story, she was like, you're genuine. I said, yeah. yeah. And she said, well, okay. She said, um, do you fancy doing a story about slavery, modern-day slavery? I said, well, it doesn't exist. She'd know it does. Yeah. She'd come come with us and we'll show you. So I flew into Sudan on my first ever trip to Sudan, probably about 30 years ago, with her. And we we met a modern day slave trader. So this guy was a, you know, was a an Arab from the north. And basically what they were doing was they were coming south on these slave raids and they were taking black Africans and they were selling them in, in the north as slaves. I mean, it's just that that and so, you know, he was all wrapped up in his uh to hide his face and yeah. I interviewed him and he had some slaves there. We interviewed them and 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 ran the story. So, you know, I'd gone there not believing it. Mm. I had gone saying, no, no, this, this can't be happening. Mm. There it was. There were slave markets. There were slave traders. You know, there were slave raids. I, I mean, it, after that, I flew out. I can remember it as clear as it was yesterday. I remember flying to this village. It was called Niam Lel. I can remember flying in there. <clears throat> and as we flew in, the huts were still burning from slave raid. I remember turning up there, right? Slave raid. Yes. So people, they'd, they'd ridden in on camels and horses. Collapsed Set the them alight. Set get them alight. Get them on out. Yeah, wow. Gone. And I remember flying in there literally in the aftermath, huts still burning. And um, 
and it went slinging our hammocks. And, and that evening, I can remember really it's kind of stranger things that stick in your memory. I remember this guy, this 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 rebel kind of fighter turned up and he had a Kalashnikov slung across his neck like that. And I remember it really distinctly because the curved uh, magazine of the Kalashnikov was like burnished bronze gold in the setting, set African setting sun. Like it would just look really beautiful yeah. in a strange way. And he had a goat on a string, right? <clears throat> I was like, and I was like, and he kept trying to give me the goat. Yeah. I was like, and eventually I got someone who could speak. I said, why is he trying? He said, because he's bought it for you. I said, I don't need a goat. He said, no, no, we're going to kill it. We're going to eat it in honor to celebrate you coming. I said, listen, the whole village has been burned. Mm. You know, there's nothing left. This is probably their last goat. This is, no, they said, you've got to do it because they are, they want to welcome you yeah. in their traditional way. And you have to slaughter a goat and, did you have to slaughter the goat? No, I didn't. No, didn't no, they did that. They, you, just roll back a minute ago. Yeah. You mentioned the word slave market. Yeah. Have you seen a, have you physically seen a slave market? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Filmed it. Yeah. Yeah. What does a, what does a slave market look like? Well, it's a bunch of, um, you know, black African, you know, generally women. I mean, it, it was many women and children that they were enslaving. It's very hard to enslave and control fully grown men for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and they would be there, you know, kneeling, bound. And there would be these guys, you know, in Arab robes, you know, with their hooks, whips, staffs, whatever, presiding over them. And there'd be money change hands and bidding and haggling and all that kind of stuff happening. That's what was going on. Bloody hell. Yeah. And, you know, we had to... You know, the only way you could get access to that kind of situation was to basically, it's just like I did with the diamond dealing. Yeah. You had to go in there as if pretending <clears throat> you yeah. were yeah. a potential purchaser. And, did you and, go in as if you're a potential purchaser of trying to well, buy you a slave? Had to, you had to. And, and, the, and the thing about it is the really interesting, well, not interesting, horrific, but psychology of it is because you are white. And because this is all about race, it's about, you know, people of, of an Arab, Arab persuasion, yeah. so with lighter skins, yeah. selling slaves who are of a darker skin, mm. the Arabs presume you're on their side. Yeah. Do you get my drift? Yeah. They presume you also think they should be slaves because their skin color's, you know, black. Do yeah. you get my drift? Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of innate sense from them that you must be on their side, that you're not there to expose what's going yeah. on. Yeah. So that kind of plays in your favour. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't believe it until I went there, and it was like, "This is really happening." And then we, you know, put it on the news. That's crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah. Give me another book that really stands out in your mind that you've written. One that stands out. You got thirty-five to pick from. Well, I'll tell you a story that 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 that's, that absolutely blew me away. I mean, just blew me away. So this book, SS Forged in Hell which I've just published, um, you know. Uh, SAS Forged in Hell. Forged in Hell. Yeah. It's just come, it's just been. Yeah, two weeks, two, two weeks, weeks ago. And What's this book about? It's about the. Sunday Times number one best-selling author. It's about the formation of the SAS in World War Two. So this is when the unit was founded. And it's about the Mavericks who, who founded the SAS. And, and it's a, there's an interesting backstory to it. So I'll just try and briefly yeah. tell it. So 10 years ago, around about 10 years ago, I got, contacted out of the blue again via my website and a, by a guy who called himself one of the keepers right so we got on the phone and he said i'm i'm one of the keepers of the archive 
and the memorabilia of Colonel Blair Paddy Main. Now, Colonel Blair Paddy Main, who was the star of the BBC SAS Road yep. Hero Show. Yep. So Blair Paddy Main was the commander of the SAS for most of the war after David Sterling, the SAS founder, was captured by the enemy. Okay? So we're talking in the 40s here. Yeah, we're talking 41 through the end of the war. Yeah, okay. okay. And... He's also arguably the most highly decorated British soldier from the Second World War. He won the DSO and three bars. So that's the Distinguished Service Order, second only to the Victoria Cross four times. And he won the Légion d'Honneur and the Croix de Guerre and lots of other foreign Mm. decorations. So this guy was, you know, you talk to SAS veterans today, you talk to Des Powell or anyone, they will say the archetypal SAS commander is Paddy Main. They all revere this figure. Anyway, so this guy calls me, uh, he, you know, he says, we're the keeper of, of the archive of Paddy Main. And we want to know if you will come to Northern Ireland to look through it all. So I flew over there and I went to the Main family home, met, met Paddy Main's niece. And there in a room, which they've rediscovered in the loft, <clears throat> is his uniform, you know, uh, loads of stuff he'd captured off the enemy, binoculars, cameras, whatever it might be, you know, uh, and a massive huge wooden war chest stuffed full of letters, diaries, photographs, film, uh, archive entries, reports from five years of operating behind enemy lines. Right? Now, that is a moment which you know, you that's a once-in-a-lifetime moment. This is golden. Yeah, golden. Yeah. And, and they said, you know, could you, do you think there's a book in this? And anyway, so I'm trying to cut the long story short. So I, 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 I there will be three books out of it. So I wrote SAS... Brothers in Arms, last year, which is the story of the first 18 months of the SAS. This one, SAS Forged in Hell, is the next kind of like year of the SAS, so the push into Nazi and fascist Europe, which the SAS spearheaded, right? But the reason I wanted to talk about the story is because in that war chest, Paddy Main's war chest, in one of the many, many reports in there, there was one which had this like one paragraph mention of this mission right and i read it and i thought no that cannot be true i do not believe it right so the paragraph says something like you know in october 1943 we hijacked a train drove it 100 kilometers through enemy territory to a italian concentration camp uh, took the concentration camp rescued 180 of the people held in that concentration camp loaded them back aboard the train and steamed back to allied lines I was like, no, 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 that can't have happened because I've never, you yeah, know, I'm, never, a, yeah. I'm an expert in this field. Yeah. I've never even heard about it. Yeah. This cannot have happened. So then I started researching and I found two other reports by two different individuals which corroborated it. Yeah. It is true. Bloody it God. has never been publicized before. Um, there's nothing ever written about it, right? So what happened was in, in October 1943, um, the SAS are the, the tip of the spear to land on the Italian mainland and they establish a bridgehead at Timoli, right? right on the, tip, the southern tip of Italy, okay? There's a concentration camp about 150 kilometers from Tomoli, a place called Pistisi. And Italy had concentration camps like Nazi Germany did. Right. We tend to forget that, right? Yeah. A guy escapes from Pistisi concentration camp. He treks all the way to the Allied bridgehead. He gets into the Allied headquarters and tells the Allied commanders, I've escaped from a concentration camp at Pistisi. Now, the Allied commanders do not have a clue what a concentration camp mm. is because we've never come across yeah. one before. This is the first. Yeah. So one, they don't know what it is. And two, he's saying, can you rescue all the people held there? Otherwise, they're going to ship them off to Nazi Germany, right? And and obviously, they will then all die, right? So 
the Allah, com- the, the Allah commands thinking, well, one, we, we have no experience of what a concentration camp mm. is. Two, who on earth can we send? Mm. Step forward, a guy called Major Oswald Carrie Ells, high-born, six-foot-two, ramrod straight SAS major, right, who'd led this, yeah. this jeep-born tip-of-the-spear landing, yeah. right? And his French deputy, a guy called Raymond Courand, who is the most... You could not make this character up, right? So he's French foreign legionnaire before the war, okay? France falls, deserts from the French foreign legion, goes to Marseille, the French port city on the Mediterranean coast, falls in love with an American socialite there, right? They together fund and rescue 2,000 Jews and get them out of Nazi-occupied France, right? Then they get... They get found out by the Gestapo, right? Courant just manages to escape. Epic escape, gets to Britain, gets recruited into the Special Operations Executive, <laughs> Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemen yeah. Warfare. The organisation set up to do all the illegal things you're not allowed to do. Does some missions with the SOE, gets shot in both legs by the enemy on one of these missions, manages to escape, gets back to the UK. This is his second major yeah. escape, right? Now, because he's known to the enemy, they know his real name, changes his name to Raymond uh, Raymond Fox, right? And assumes a British-American identity, joins the SAS and is Cariel's deputy as they land in Italy. And Raymond Courand, right, commands a squadron of, of, free, of former French foreign legionnaires, yeah. right? Yeah. So you've got a load of British SAS and a load of French SAS, yeah. right? And there's a concentration camp and they need to go get them. Okay. Now, what have they got? They're, they're riding in their Willys Jeeps. Okay. You can probably get four people in a Jeep. There are, there are hundreds of people to rescue. You can't go and rescue yeah. them all in Jeeps. So what do they do? They hijack a train. <laughs> and they put, brilliant. They put Caron's <laughs> Free French SAS yeah. and a bunch of British SAS on the train. Go and do they a job. steam it through American uh, enemy territory. Meanwhile, uh, Carrie Ells, right, takes a Jeep patrol and they drive it into enemy territory to take the main uh, crossing point to hold it from the enemy. The train gets through, they get to the concentration camp, rescue all the inmates, load them on the train, steam them back through. Carrie Ells is still holding the, 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 cross, the, the crossing point, get back to British territory. That's unbelievable. And it's true. Isn't it? It's true. <laughs> My God. And that's all in here? Some of it's in there, yeah, yeah. It's told in there. How but... excited? I just saw on your face how excited you were telling this story. Man. Is this is this out of all your 35 books the most exciting one for you? Because it's no one's ever found anything like you found. The, the, I, there's a lot. Uh, any number of those titles are, are, you know, revelatory in terms of what they write about. But that mission... If you look, if I wrote that mission as, as, you as thinking, a Hollywood outlaw, yeah, you would think it was would say, "Come on, yeah, come on, mate." This didn't happen. Wind your neck in. There's no way that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. it's true. And the, the other the other thing that's fascinating about it is, okay, get your head around this. Oswald Cariels commands a mission in which they hijack a train and they rescue 180 concentration camp victims and bring them back to Allied lines. Okay, that is an extraordinary yeah. thing to do. There were no decorations. Nobody earned a single high valor medal from that mission. It's inconceivable. And the only possible explanation for that is because nobody wanted that story to come out. Right, okay. And the reason they didn't want that story to come out, and this became this became Allied policy through the war, is because they didn't want to pub- publicize the concentration camps. Right, okay. Because at a very high level, they argued that if you publicize the concentration camps, you would demonize the enemy which would make them less likely to surrender and might prolong the war. Right, okay. Do you get my drift? So basically, 80 years on, you've now got this story. Yeah. 
And at the time it was covered up. Wow. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you couldn't write it. No. You could not write no. it. Damien. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this whole episode. Like this is a, this is like amazing. The stories you've got and the things that you've done in your life is really fascinating, you know. And you just nail this eventful lives podcast. You're like the epitome of the eventful lives podcast. <laughs> I thank you so much for coming in. No, I appreciate it. It's been great. I'm actually really quite blown away by this by this whole story. Cheers. You're a proper gentleman. Yeah. I wish you all the best. Yeah. Brilliant interview, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good man. <laughs>